Hello and welcome to the very first episode of our Decarb District podcast. This podcast is a series of five episodes and in each episode we tackle a different aspect of the decarbonization of feeding and cooling and the role of district energy. My name is Susanne Tull and in this first episode we'll talk about smart integrated energy systems and how they can contribute to a cost-efficient green transition. And there's no better person to discuss this topic with than our guest today, who is Brian Valmatisen, professor at Auburn University in Denmark and one of the leading researchers behind the concept of smart energy systems. Brian, you have done a lot of research over the years on integrated energy systems. And many people will know, for example, the Heat Roadmap Era project that was led by your university and where you analyzed how energy system integration can help European countries to decarbonize their economies in an efficient way. But if you maybe start with the basics, since not everyone might be familiar with the concept, could you explain a little bit what is actually a smart integrated energy system and how is it different from the energy system that we, that we have today? Yeah, first of all, thank you for inviting me here on your podcast series. Uh, and uh, if I should try and go a little into what is actually a smart integrated energy system, I think we should start by sort of imagining what, what kind of future we're looking at. Um, so in the in the future, which is not so far away, but in 2030, 2040, 2050, uh, we have to have a world where we have decarbonized our energy system substantially. And there are European countries that are far and there's some that are not so far. But in that future, uh, do we imagine that we have uh, eliminated all of our use of energy? No, we do not imagine that. We imagine we have changed it. Do we imagine that we need to use electricity? Yes, we do. Do we imagine we need to heat our houses? Yes, maybe a bit less than today, but we cannot insulate our way completely out of of, uh, of using heat uh, or cool, heating and cooling in, in our buildings. Do we imagine we need to take a shower? Yes, certainly we do. Uh, do we imagine we need to transport ourselves? Yes, uh, that is for sure. We need to do that. Um, and when we look at those end demands that we know to some extent that they will be there, then the smart integrated energy system approach is about understanding how do we get from the resources that are fluctuating over into these end demands uh, on one hand and how do we make sure that the timing of the resources is coordinated with the end demand and in that timing um, there's a lot of people who are talking about batteries and we need to store the electricity to times when we don't have electricity. Uh, but there's much less talk about how can we make a flexible system so we actually can avoid uh, having too many losses. Because when you store electricity, then you will induce some losses into your system. And the smart integrated energy system approach is about understanding how can we store between the end demand and the resources we put into the energy system. And if you go back to that 
element that we imagine that we will all do, uh, namely take a shower, <laughs> then you could say, is it not possible to store that hot water until we need to take the shower instead of trying to make the electricity system balance from second to second and using an expensive battery to do that. And um, that is one of the elements in this smart integrated approach that we try to use cheaper storage elements than simply focusing on uh, and the electricity system and the batteries. In that system, we have several storages. We have the thermal storage, and the bigger the thermal storage, the better. So, of course, we can store a bit in the house in 200 liters, but if we can store energy in our district heating system with big cylinders or, or underground storage, then we create a lot of flexibility. The other storages we need could be on the gas side, that we have gas uh, storages. We could uh, imagine that our, our, some of our trucks or ships or planes are not able to convert to batteries or electricity, and in that case, we need a fuel. And our research points to the fact that most likely liquid fuels are a good idea. And liquid fuels can be stored very cost-effectively. In fact, it's cheaper to store uh, liquid fuels than, 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 than heat in, in a thermal uh, water-based storage. But these storages are then a factor of at least 100 times cheaper than to store energy in a battery. And this is really why a smart energy system is also a cost energy a cost-efficient system and a resource-efficient system. Rien, you mentioned here a lot of different energy carriers like electricity, um, like fuels, like like thermal grid, so so district energy, district heating and cooling. That sounds like, like a lot of infrastructure. So does that mean that we will need in the future actually more infrastructure and different infrastructure with different carriers to to cover the needs in the most in the most cost efficient way and how is that then still cost efficient that's right we we do need some some other energy infrastructure and if we look at the energy carriers that we we have we have electricity we can have district energy or district heating uh, we could have district cooling and we can have uh, gas grids we can also have liquid fuel grids and uh, when we look at Uh, all of these grids, we we can see that if we focus on heating and cooling, that the current gas grid is not really fit for the heating options that are that are able to also uh, bring us to the targets in the Paris Agreement, but also not able to do so in a cost-efficient way. So there will be some of the current infrastructure that will be abundant. But then there will be new infrastructure that needs uh, to be built. And you could, you could say we can replace the gas uh, heating, the gas-based heating, which is very dominant in Europe, with electricity, or we can replace it with uh, district heating. Uh, we could, in principle, also replace it with biomass, but I think everybody can imagine that biomass is not an, an option on an individual basis uh, on, a, on the entire continent. But when we look at electricity, then an option could be heat pumps. The problem is here that uh, when we look at individual heat pumps in, in larger cities like Antwerp or let's say uh, Nantes in France or, or something like that, we can see that if we put so many heat pumps up uh, into our houses, then we actually need to expand quite substantially the uh, 
electricity grid. And uh, not only do we need to expand the electricity grid, we also need to expand the power plants uh, because the heating will be needed at the same time for a longer period. And, and the capacity of the grids needs to be able to supply that. So you imagine a winter situation, two months on and off between 10 and plus and 10 minus degrees, yeah, then the grid has to be able to handle that fluctuation and, and handle those peaks. And the peaks are going to be exactly at the same time in the entire grid, which is going to require quite a substantial expansion. In some countries, the electricity grid is better able to handle it, but in many countries, this would need a heavy expansion, especially in cities. And, uh, and then also you need power plants, and you need power plants because there's no sort of, uh, let's say, correlation between the heat demand in the building and the renewable energy production that you could imagine from, from wind or, or, or PV. And, uh, and that, that means that, that this is really not a very cost-efficient way to do things. So, and that's why we have spent uh, quite a lot of our research uh, time on understanding this integrated system where we expand the use of electricity. How, how can we do that while uh, using other energy vectors? And, and this is where district heating comes into play. The district heating grid and that infrastructure, that energy carrier, is uh, much, much cheaper than to expand the, uh, the electricity grid. And, uh, and that's why in, in that sense, to have a smart integrated energy system in Europe requires that we build out the thermal infrastructure uh, throughout the continent. And in a recent report, we also pointed out that we need several thousands of new district heating grids to be able to have a smart integrated energy system in 2040 or 2050. If we zoom a bit more in on the role of district energy here, the situation in European countries differs quite a lot. There is a lot of district energy in Scandinavia. There's other countries like, for example, Spain, where district energy is almost non-existent. And then you have a lot of Eastern European countries, Central and Eastern European countries, where there is a lot of district energy, but it's also often quite, quite old infrastructure that needs modernization. So that leads me to the question, what form or what kind of district energy is actually needed to support these smart integrated systems? And how does the district heating grid then exactly help integrate the fluctuating electricity? Well, there, there are many, many answers actually to your questions, because f first of all, we, we could say we have, we have tried to map all of the heat demand in Europe geographically. And, and when you do that, you realize that most of the heat is actually placed in a rather, in rather densely populated areas. So that means that, that you can actually fit a thermal grid or district energy grid into those areas and actually have quite a substantial impact because the heat demands are, are rather concentrated. And uh, what we also found was that when we start to look at things locally like that and have this geographical overview that that you can go to Heat Roadmap Europe, that the homepage and, and have a look at, then you realize that there's so much waste heat available that that you could 
theoretically almost cover all of the heat demand currently in, in Europe for, for, for heating up houses. Of course, some of it is then not placed close to the city, but a lot of it will be that, that you could at least use 25% of it. But what about the rest? What should we then do with that? Well, you can imagine we, we don't have district heating. What would we then do? Well, then we'd have to use a lot of electricity and expand the electricity grid a lot and expand the wind turbines or PV a lot. PV doesn't really help for heat, so it would be wind. Or we have to use a lot of uh, bioenergy or, 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 or green gas, as, as, as it's called uh, now. And, uh, and, and that, that is really then uh, the question, why not shift those fuels over into a more flexible system where you use the district energy system and the thermal storages that I described before. When we start to analyze this, you realize that it's a multitude of different production options that we need to look at. And I'll just try and, and go through some of them. So, of course, we have we have waste heat from industry where the, where the temperatures are already high enough and, and which in, in which case you can use them directly into the district heating system. You have a possibility to do uh, geothermal uh, uh, in a lot of places in Europe. You can use uh, solar thermal, but you can also use heat pumps, uh, large-scale heat pumps, which is uh, something that, that we have investigated quite a lot, where you, you imagine you have 25-degree hot water, which is, of course, not hot enough to, to use for anything, but we can if we use it together with a large-scale heat pump uh, and use some of the renewable-based electricity, we can actually increase the temperature level to something that we can use into the, the, the thermal grid. And uh, by that, we can use uh, waste heat from many more industries. We can use waste heat from data centers. Then on top of these, things, you have waste incineration, uh, and of course, uh, you also have uh, bioenergy that we can use to some extent to to fill in the, the gaps and the holes in the system. And when we look at the future, you can also imagine that we have uh, production plants for for these fuels for, for transport, where you have electrolysis, electrolysis is, is that process where you use electricity to create hydrogen. And there's quite a lot of surplus heat from that, which, which can be used into to the district heating grid as well, if we plan it in, in the right way, of course. So I think that there are really many, many options to, to have a good, sustainable district heating supply. And when you ask a question, what would that supply look like? You also have to ask yourself the question, well, what if we don't have district heating? What would it then look like? And would that be sustainable? And I don't think it would. But Prien, in the, in the heat roadmap Europe, you also analyzed that the feasible share of district energy in Europe would be around uh, 50%. So district heating could cover 50% of the heat demand in a, in a sustainable way. And in the Heat Roadmap Europe, and I think also in other research projects, you then also analyzed what would be the benefits of having that infrastructure, what would be the contribution to, to, to climate goals and so on. 
can you say a little bit about that, about the benefits and, and, um, and if you have quantified them, like in terms of CO2 reduction, energy savings and so on? The, the redesign of our energy system is just as important as the end saving if we if we think about the role of district heating. Now, how much greenhouse gas emissions you are able to reduce is, is completely depending on that system. When we look at the full roadmaps, we can see that in all of the systems, if we don't have district heating, then our systems become more expensive uh, due to the fact that we need more renewable energy sources, but also more expensive because we're missing an element of flexibility and an element of energy storage, which increases the flexibility and hence reduces the, the costs of the overall transition that we're going through. So in our, our heat roadmap Europe studies, we found quite substantial uh, savings due to both this end demand saving, but also the redesign of the system uh, introducing a lot more uh, district energy. And we can save at least 70 billion euros overall annually by, by doing so. I think the potential may be even larger depending on how smart you are with integrating the different parts of, uh, of this. In addition, I think it's worth mentioning that Right now, we're uh, importing a lot of natural gas in, in, in Europe. And actually, we found that we can reduce that uh, and have uh, uh, lower imports of a value between 50 and, and 65 billion euros. So there's, there's also a, a geopolitical element to this energy efficiency improvement that we have investigated in the, the, the series of Heat Roadmap Europe studies. Those are some some impressive benefits, uh, I would say. But moving maybe from the research and from the theory to practice, Brian. Yeah. yeah. Um, you you have been publishing research on this topic on smart energy system on the energy transition for a long time now. I think your the first article that you published on 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 flexibility and electricity system and so on was around 15 years ago. That's and, right. And, and you're not only doing the research, you're also spending a lot of time explaining the, the research and explaining the benefits of smart integrated energy systems at conferences in the media and so on. So now, 15 years after your first article, do you see that the concept has been picking up also in practice? And do cities, do policymakers use the concept or support the concept? I do think so. I can see a big difference. I think the situation 15 years ago was that district heating and district energy was a, a thing of the past and we needed to move forward and we needed to have all of these new technologies, fuel cells and hydrogen and uh, a lot more energy savings introduced. And uh, some of the things that I started on researching at that time was to understand whether that was the case or not. So. So that was actually some of the first research <laughs> was about understanding, do we need district energy or is it a thing of the past? And and I think during the, these investigations and this research, also looking at large scale integration of, of wind and, and renewable energy in the electricity grid, then the district energy element is, is an extremely flexible and valuable player in a decarbonized 
renewable-based energy system. And what's then going on on the ground? Well, also now, as 15 years ago, a lot of cities are working on plans to decarbonize their energy system. And, and I think what has happened is that they are much more focused on the option of district he heating and district energy than they were 15 years ago, where they were all looking at these new solutions and, and thinking that district energy, if we have it, it's something that we should dismantle, or if we don't have it, we don't want it, or maybe we're not even aware that it's a technology. And I can see that there's a lot of cities, in, especially here in, in Europe, where the option to decarbonize the, uh, the heating and cooling system is really focused on establishing new district heating uh, systems. And that was for sure not the case even five years ago. And uh, of course, I hope that the research that I and my colleague have, have done uh, a difference in that debate because what we tried to do with HeatRoadMap Europe and those series of studies was to make a, let's say, a, a democratic quantification public debate pinch grip where we tried to give out some data and some knowledge on a very local basis. So you can go to, to this research and we disseminated the research as you, as you pointed out in media and, and conferences, and you can go and find your own city, your own country, your own region, and understand what the potential is here. So you have a better democratic debate from the bottom. But then at the same time, we try to communicate with the commission and also the very good civil servants within DG Energy, Energy to understand, to have them understand that this is actually an option and to start to get these things written in from, from that kind of top level. And that has then been a success. I mean, it is written in now and they are referring to our work. And that is then being also spread into the national context of, of, the, of the member states. So we see that this democratic pinch grip, as I sometimes call it, where we give data and knowledge from the bottom, but we also give data and knowledge from the top, is actually having a a rather big effect in in uh, in Europe right now. And when you say the Commission has also taken up the concept, I guess you're referring to the to the strategy on energy system integration that was recently published by the Commission. If you have a look at that strategy and what the Commission is doing there, they're I mean acknowledging the different elements that are important in such a smart energy system, and they also lay out some very concrete policy actions or or planned policy actions to take to support sector integration. Do you have any views on if what they have done so far with this strategy and other and other initiatives is sufficient or if there's anything kind of left to be done to support smart energy systems from the European level? So, so actually it started uh, with the heating and cooling strategy. That is actually the first time it was really disseminated quite a lot. And now, now we have this follow-up strategy with the with the integrated energy system. But yes, there, there certainly is a lot of, 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 of things that are being highlighted and that, that is being mentioned. But I, I think that, that district energy has a, a, the problem sometimes that it, it's, it's not a, an, an EU task to support local city-based uh, solutions. And national states also sometimes feel, well, 
it's not really a national task to to actually finance these things and and that means that in some contexts it takes a while before things are actually happening on the ground because in many cases you need the national legislation to be fit to do this infrastructure which is costly and this is 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 uh, is very long term but when it's there it's very cost efficient so i i feel that there's really a lot to be done uh, on the legislative side and I, I also think that that on the eu level there can be many more things supported you have uh, the the mechanism uh, projects of common interest, you could say, where you support electricity and gas grids. And I have been promoting that we try to make a system where we actually promote local thermal grids with that mechanism, not financing everything, but maybe financing 10% or 15% and then saying, well, we will finance it if it's locally owned and if you have a plan to expand to the whole city or something like this. Uh, so I think that's that's really quite a lot of things that 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 could be do be done. In your research, you also underline quite often the importance of energy planning, which um, which is a practice that is or that doesn't necessarily exist everywhere in Europe. So is this something that could also be supported somehow by the EU level? Yeah, so there's there's a whole planning procedure between the local, regional, national, and EU level where there's there's really a lot that that could be done. But but you could say to some extent, when when you see some scenarios coming out from the Commission, that is part of energy planning. But then I'm just very sad to see that in these scenarios we don't have district heating. So uh, I think there's there's still a lot to do to to have you could call it a level level playing field I don't know what, what how you would mention it but it it's it's in a sense you could say thermal infrastructure is agnostic to what kind of heating you put into it it's a public infrastructure like electricity and gases but it should then also be handled and used uh, as part of the option both in the scenarios that you do but also when you when you look at the renewable energy directives or the energy efficiency directives then then it's really important that that you have space for 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 promoting this infrastructure and sometimes you see that some of the directives are actually hindering this infrastructure because you have a lot of focus on the individual building or the individual ownership of 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 a, of a heat supply option I just have one last question for you, Brian. How do you see this transformation of our energy system that you have been describing? How do you see this developing in the near future, especially having in mind also the, the current crisis situation that we are in? Right now, we are in the middle of a corona crisis, and we see that it's going back and forth with closing down or opening up, and, and it's probably going to last for a while. But I also see that there's a lot of focus on keeping the momentum within uh, the green transition. And one of the things that I think is is really important is that we we don't forget to make uh, long-term uh, investments in in our uh, thermal grids in this, this green transition. So I would say some of the uh, important things that I would 
look for in these help packages that we that we have seen from the EU, but that we also see from from uh, national governments is uh, uh, is what is the focus on insulating buildings and on expanding our uh, district energy grid. I think if if we look at the a situation where we want to even get close to 50% of of our uh, heating uh, supply being uh, based on district heating, then uh, then we need more than 8,000 new systems to be established before 2020. And uh, to do that, you really require some of this uh, help funding, uh, help funds to be directed uh, towards that. But if we do so, we can also see that there's quite a lot of jobs involved in it. And uh, uh, to reach these 8,000 new, more than 8,000 new systems before 2030, uh, then we actually need to spend between 15 and 20 billion euros per year in that period. And uh, you can imagine that actually can provide quite a substantial amount of jobs in this situation where we where we see layoffs in other parts of, of society. So I think it's important that, that we think in the green transition and in, in this crisis situation that we're also in uh, due to COVID-19, then, uh, then it's really important that we also have in mind that, that this is part of the solution. Thanks for this last comment and uh, thank you very much for joining, Brian. It was a pleasure to have you here. And thanks to everyone listening, of course. If you want to learn more about smart integrated energy systems or sustainable heating and cooling in general, you can follow one of the links in the episode description or you can simply listen to the rest of the episodes of our DCARB Districts podcast. In the next episode, we talk about modern low temperature district heating and how cities all over Europe are using district energy in very innovative ways to decarbonize their heating supply.